Please remain standing as I read scripture and have the privilege of sharing Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56 with you. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Matt. You may be seated if you're not already. And good evening, Disciples Church. Wow. One of those nights. All right, it's good to see you. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege to be able to open the word uh, with you and for you. So turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. It is good to see you. Good to have you um, with us if you're visiting with us. We're just so glad that you're here on a gorgeous night like this. Excited to be able to look once again uh, at God's word together. And as we continue on this week, um, if you've been with us really for the past several months, um, we, took a, we took about a two-month break when we were not meeting um, during kind of the COVID lockdown season where we worked through the Psalms. But outside of that, we've been in the book of Mark uh, for the whole year of 2020. And so as we come through about ha- the halfway point of the book of Mark, we've been talking about this idea each week that Mark is trying to give you a picture of who Jesus Christ is. That as much as anything else, he wants you to be able to walk away from the reading of this book with a solid understanding and a picture in your mind of who this Jesus is. And so we come again this evening to a a very familiar story. We kind of dubbed them lovingly last week the Sunday school uh, stories, these different accounts of the Gospels um, about the specific life of Jesus Christ that, that are famous just by their very nature. I mean, these are stories that that are probably not new for most of us, especially if you've grown up in or around the church. These are things that are familiar to you. And one of the challenges when we come to familiar stories is that we have a tendency to look at them through the lens that we previously heard them before. In other words, if you've heard this story before and if you've heard preaching on a text like this before, you may already have a sense in your mind of where it is that we're going to end up. And my hope for you in this evening is that you would look afresh and anew at this text, that it would jump out at you in a new way. Not that anything that I have to say is profound, but that you would see in this text things that you haven't seen before. Because one of the challenges that we have when we come to texts like this, especially familiar texts, is we try to find who we are in the story. 
So here's what I mean. When we come to a text like this, the temptation is to look at this text and we hear about Jesus bringing peace in the middle of calamity, in the middle of a storm for his disciples. We hear about the miraculous work that he does in walking out on the sea to greet them and to meet them and ultimately to bring peace to them. And the application that we immediately draw is that God is going to bring peace in the middle of my storm. Now, now that application is good and true. That's a, that's a right application that God, in fact, does bring peace in the middle of heartache, in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of struggle and tumult. But that's really not the point of this story. The point of the story is to reveal who this Jesus Christ is. And bear in mind, these are eyewitness accounts that Mark is recording for us. In fact, Mark, throughout this text, has been recording for us probably the eyewitness of Peter himself as Peter and Mark traveled together in ministry. Peter talks about this idea in the second book named after him, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, where Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, he's saying the point of these stories ultimately isn't that that you would just marvel at the power of Jesus Christ, though certainly we ought to marvel at his power, nor are these stories just a mere construct meant to evoke a reaction or an emotional response to God. In other words, these stories are not here to emotionally manipulate you into some sort of pseudo-belief. These stories are given to you to reveal who Jesus Christ is, and Peter himself acts as the very eyewitness through which these stories are told to Mark. And what's amazing about the way that Mark always communicates these things is that while while Luke and John in their text want to tell you about Jesus' divinity, Mark wants to show it to you. So as we approach this halfway point of the book of Mark, approaching ultimately the chapters that devote themselves to Jesus' death on the cross and ultimately as well his resurrection and ascension, we come across these barrage of stories that show his divinity. Some of these stories are going to be familiar, even familiar to stories that we've already studied, so I'll just give you a hint of what that looks like. We, we talked about the story last week of the feeding of the 5,000, and later in this book is, is the recording of the story of the feeding of the 4,000. All right, Very similar ideas, obviously, in both of those stories, but each of them is to convey the nature and the power and the character and the wonder of who Jesus Christ is. And so even as some of these stories start to resemble one another, there are unique things that we learn about Christ in and through them. And so with that in mind, we look beginning in verse 45. Immediately, this is after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now it may not appear this way upon the first reading of these verses, but these verses have spawned all kinds of speculation from scholars and academics, and pastors, and theologians. 
In fact, if you start to look up in various commentaries, the different views and perspectives that different scholars have on these texts, you'll find all kinds of different interpretations. And I'm going to explain why I think that is as we move through this. But remember, Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000. If you were here last week, you heard all about that story. Jesus has fed 5,000 men. And beyond that, scholars speculate between 15 and 20,000 people with one little boy's lunch. And as he stood there breaking off the pieces and distributing them, ultimately the food working its way out into the crowd to the point where people, all who were gathered, eat until they are satisfied. And even after they're satisfied, there are 12 remaining baskets full of food. All of this demonstrates his power. And so it's interesting to note that in this moment, Mark records for us that Jesus told the disciples to leave quickly. When it says he made them go, the literal translation of that phrase is he compelled them by force. It's as if Jesus is literally physically pushing the disciples to clear this area and to get out of here. And then he goes and he begins to break up the crowd and send them home and tell them to leave. And we're actually told what he's doing in John's account of the same story. In John chapter 6, verse 15, what it says is that Jesus began to break up the crowd because he was trying to undercut this fervor that had overtaken them. All the people that were gathered there that day who saw this miracle be performed and saw the wonders of what Jesus had been able to accomplish and all of this just on the heels of Herod Antipas having killed John the Baptist, these people were looking for a leader. They were looking for a king. They were looking for someone whom they could support in a governmental coup. And Jesus recognizes the severity of the situation. He recognizes even that the disciples may have been susceptible to this sort of hype. If you remember back earlier in the book of Mark, there's all sorts of instances where the disciples are thrilled at the turnout of the crowd. They're thrilled to see his miracles. They're thrilled to see all of the things that Jesus is accomplishing. And just as they think Jesus is hitting his stride in a particular region or in a particular city, Jesus just ups and leaves. And he does the same thing here. Why in the world wouldn't he try to take advantage of what seems to be a prime opportunity for the gospel to move forward? I think we find the answer in the fact that Jesus just then, after dismissing the crowd and and forcing the disciples to leave, he withdraws to pray. See, there was something about this moment that led Jesus to act abruptly. He sends his disciples away, he dismisses the crowd, he withdraws himself to pray. And let me just suggest, and there's a lot of commentaries that would argue this same idea, let me just suggest to you that perhaps in this moment, Jesus himself is facing a temptation. That perhaps a temptation had been placed in front of him. And here's here's why I land at that conclusion. If you remember back to Jesus' original temptation, the temptation in the wilderness, he goes out following the leading of the Holy Spirit. He goes off into the wilderness by himself for 40 days and 40 nights, and he doesn't eat during that time, and he's among the wild animals during that time. All kinds of craziness is happening around him in that place. And during his time in the wilderness, Satan comes to him and presents a temptation. And if you remember that exchange between Satan and Jesus, as Jesus is famished and exhausted and away from any kind of support or accountability. Satan comes to him, takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of a high place, and shows him the kingdoms of the world. And as 
As Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world, he says to him, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Now the problem for us is that we typically think of Jesus in superhero terms. And so when we think about the idea of a temptation being placed in front of Jesus, we think about him having some sort of stoic response. But do you understand that a temptation by its very necessity has to have an attractive quality about it? That there must have been something, there must have been something about that that would have been attractive to Jesus in that moment? And do you also understand that there was nothing inherently wrong with Jesus desiring to rule over all the kingdoms of the world? In fact, we know that Jesus ultimately will rule over everything and over every kingdom and every one. But the problem, the temptation ultimately that Satan placed in front of him was that God the Father had already established the means by which he was going to come into his rule. And the means by which Jesus would rule over every kingdom and every nation and every people was the cross. See, Satan was offering Jesus a wrong means to accomplish a good end. And perhaps, and this is speculation, perhaps in much the same way, a temptation in this moment laid in front of Jesus. The people, we're told in John chapter 6, wanted to make him king. They said this out loud. They were saying among themselves, this 15 to 20,000 people that were gathered were declaring, we've got to make this guy king. Look at the things he can do. Imagine the kingdom that he could oversee. Imagine the government he could usher in. And had Jesus indulged them in that moment, he would have avoided the cross. But Jesus' response to the temptation in the wilderness is the same response that he has here. Because in the wilderness, he says to Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and listen to these words, and him only shall you serve. In other words, Jesus was able to resist temptation in this moment of physical exhaustion because he was so secure in his identity as the son of the father. He was so secure in his identity as the servant of the Lord. And in order to resist the temptation, he removes himself from this place immediately. Now we could spend the rest of the evening just talking about some of the lessons that could be drawn from this, but I want you just to notice a few quick things before we move on. First, understand this: Satan often uses good things, things that perhaps God even intends for us, ultimately, to tempt us into ignoring God's timing and purpose. Let me repeat that. Satan often uses good things to tempt us to ignore God's timing and God's purpose. So what does that mean? See, many of the temptations that we have are rooted in things that are not inherently wicked. All right, so if we think, for instance, about the physical relationship between, between a man and a woman, that desire inherently is a good and right thing. It's something that God has placed in us. It's something he's wired us for. It's something he's constructed us for. He has designed us for that intimacy and for that relationship. But the temptation that Satan would drop into your lap is to rush the timing of that, 
to pursue a relationship like that outside of the bonds of marriage, outside of what he's ultimately intended in a committed covenantal relationship, a man with a woman, outside of that relationship to try to find some sort of physical satisfaction. What have you done when you give into that temptation? You pursued something that was inherently part of the way that God wired you to be, but you did it outside of his timing and his way. You've misused his purpose and you've ignored his timing. Or for some, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with an issue of timing, but your temptation is to make good things, in the words of one author, into ultimate things. Where you take something that is inherently good, something that God intended for you to enjoy, and you make it ultimate. So pleasure, or money, or work, or education, anything that God intended to be a good and right thing in your life can become a sinful controlling thing when you give it the wrong priority. Now see how Jesus responds to this temptation. First, God's intention for us is for us to be reminded of our identity in him. So one commentator said it this way. He said, Jesus in this moment affirms by prayer his calling to express his divine sonship as a servant rather than as a freedom fighter against Rome. Jesus understood the calling that had been given to him from the Father. Jesus understood that what God had ultimately intended for him was to be that that suffering servant that had been prophesied in Isaiah, that his timing in this moment was not that he come in as the conquering king, but as the servant who would suffer. And Jesus is so secure and rests his identity so strongly in the specific calling and the specific identity that, that God himself had given him that it's in these moments of temptation, potentially, that he reminds himself of what God has ultimately called him to. Second, God's intention is for us to remove ourselves from the place of temptation as soon as we're able. So Jesus in this moment rushes the crowd off. He tells the disciples to go and he goes off by himself to be with the Lord. If you remember the story famously of, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, this moment where Joseph is faced with a very real and very personal and very intimate temptation. In the midst of that temptation, as he realizes what's happening, he gets up and begins to run out of that room, even leaving his jacket behind him in the room where Potiphar's wife laid. He is so concerned in that moment with his integrity and with his relationship with the Lord that, that those things became far more important to him than his momentary pleasure or even his earthly possessions. And he leaves immediately. And third, God's intention is for us to find strength and victory in his presence. We talked about this at length last week, the importance of our time with the Lord and spending time with him. But understand this, when Jesus was in the wilderness, what does he do in the moment of temptation? He reminds himself of the words of his father. He reminds himself of the scripture that he had known and and that he'd poured his heart into. And in this moment, Jesus immediately gets alone with his father in prayer. See, for so many of us, Prayer tends to be our place of last resort. When I've tried everything else, when I've done everything I can do, when I've exhausted every other option, when I've gotten counsel from everyone I can get counsel from, when every other alternative has failed, then I'll go to God in prayer. 
right? We even have a term for it that we use in football, right? That idea of a Hail Mary. What are we going to do when nothing else works? We're just going to toss up a prayer and hope that somehow God hears it. But Jesus treats prayer very, very differently. Prayer is the day-in, day-out conversation that he has with his Father. And in the moments of temptation, it's the immediate place that he runs. So Jesus sends the disciples out on the boat to cross to the other side. He goes up in the mountains to pray. And for the second time in two chapters, in obeying Jesus' instructions, the disciples find themselves in the middle of a storm. Verse 47, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone, that's Jesus, on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. So we follow this picture in mind. When they left the scene of the feeding of the 5,000, it was dinner time, right? They had just finished dinner, and immediately upon Jesus' closing sermon, Jesus comes to them and says, you guys have got to get out of here. I want you to go on, the, go on this boat. I want, to, I want you to go on the other side, and I'll meet you over there. And now we find these very same disciples having listened to and obeyed the, word of, the words and the instruction of Jesus. They're out in the middle of the sea. The winds are blowing hard against them. We're told that they are rowing painfully, and it says it's the time of the fourth watch. So this is between 3 a.m and 6 a.m. So think about that in your mind. These men have been out on this boat rowing hard for between six and nine hours. And not only are they rowing hard, but in some of your translations it's going to say what we just read here, that they made their headway painfully. Other translations will say they strained at the oars. And either way, the literal translation of that word is this, that they were experiencing torment. Physical pain and exhaustion as they tried to get from one side to the other. And we're told that Jesus sees them from the land. He sees their plight. He sees what they're experiencing while they were a long way off. And for the second time in two stories, he is moved with compassion. He has a desire to save them. And to do so, he does something that has never been done in the history of the world. He steps from dry land onto the water and just keeps going. And the molecules and the atoms bend to the will of Christ. I mean, imagine, if you can, the picture that's happening here. As Jesus steps out on the water and begins to walk. And their response makes all kinds of sense. Even given what they know about who Jesus is, the thought that perhaps they were seeing a ghost made as much sense to them as anything else. But in his desire to save his disciples, Jesus' divinity 
is revealed, his deity, his godship. And there's a very interesting phrase that's, that's given here. Pages and chapters have been written about this idea, but it says this, he meant to pass by them. And there's all sorts of interpretations about what that means. Some scholars and some academics will say that Jesus intended to watch them from afar, but he did not intend to intercede, uh, that, that he just wanted to see what was happening, and that once they saw him, that then he decided to help. I would just suggest that doesn't actually line up with what we find in verse 46, which says that while Jesus was still on the shore, he saw them and he headed toward them. Very clearly, he's heading out there with an intention in mind. He already knew their plight from the shore. There was no reason for him to be out on the water just to observe them further. Other people have speculated that maybe Jesus is just trying to test their faith. He wants to see if they believe in him now, if finally they understand who he really is. Maybe that's the case, but we saw in chapter 4 that the disciples had presumed that Jesus would intercede if he saw them in their need. Do you remember when they were out in the boat the first time during the storm and as the storm is rising up and as all the chaos is happening, they go down into the boat to find Jesus and they say, do you even care that we're out here perishing? Now that response came from the presumption that if things were going south, Jesus was going to step in and help. And yet others speculate that Jesus just wanted to be seen walking on the water but did not want his identity to be known. And people's explanation for that is that maybe Jesus was doing this the same way that he had done in particular healings where he told individuals whom he had just restored sight to or just restored their ability to walk or just relieved them of leprosy and he then told them, don't go and tell anybody about this. That maybe the time yet had not been revealed for him to be known as the Messiah. But remember... Remember what's going on in this text. No one else would have been around to see him. It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. And his disciples were far off. Well, then what's happening here? I think we find the answer to this New Testament question in the Old Testament. The phrase, pass by them, has a lot of significance in the Old Testament. In fact, every time you find that phrase, and you find it in at least three places, you find it in Exodus 33, which I'm gonna reference for you here, you find it as well in 1 Kings chapter 19 and in Job chapter nine, every single time that you find that phrase referenced where it says that God was going to pass by someone, it was God revealing in a unique and miraculous way, revealing himself to his people. You remember the story of God leading the children of Israel out of Egypt? And so if you remember the story specifically, God had sent all kinds of plagues on the people of Egypt and Moses had gone to them and gone to the Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And, and time after time after time, all of, these, all of these plagues happened and ultimately God led the children of Israel through Moses, led them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea where the walls, uh, where the, rather where the water stood up as if they were walls and the children of Israel crossed through on dry land. And when they got to the other side, do you remember what happened? Ultimately, ultimately, Moses goes up into the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and while he's gone, the Israelites, who have just experienced all of these miracles, begin to worship a golden calf that they had fashioned themselves. 
Moses comes down on the scene, sees what's happening, sees their abuses, sees the way that they've mistreated and rebelled against God, sees the golden calf, has a conversation with Aaron, and then he goes back and has this conversation with God in Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And what God did in that Old Testament passage, what he did in his interaction with Moses was reveal to him his power and compassion. In a moment where Moses desperately needed to be reminded of the compassion and the care of God as he was angry with the people of Israel, as he desperately needed to be reminded of God's infinite and amazing power that had brought them through already the things they had experienced and was going to carry them through the wilderness in the coming years. He desperately needed to see God. And so God passed by him, allowing Moses to see a glimpse of his glory. And in this moment, Jesus is doing the very same thing. He's doing what is humanly impossible He's doing what is impossible to explain in any human terms, by any scientific explanation. And yet, in this moment of of displaying his immense power and glory, he also shows his compassion for his disciples. And just as God had shown his compassion and power to Moses in passing by, so Jesus shows his compassion and power to the disciples. And by the way, this is why we read in the, in the catechism call and response earlier, this is why we read about who God is. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are of the same substance, distinct, unique persons, but that in them the same substance and the same power dwells. And here it's on display in the life of Jesus as he lives according to the leading of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. One author said it this way, when Jesus passes by the disciples on the lake, he does something differently from the revelation of God in the Old Testament. He intends to make the mysterious and enigmatic God become visible and palpable as he had not been and could not have been to former generations. The God of Israel, majestic and awesome, but unknowable, is now face to face, passing by believers in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus walking on the water to his disciples is a revelation of the glory that he shares with the Father and the compassion that he extends to his followers. It is a divine epiphany and an answer to the earlier bafflement when he calms the storm. Who is this? Who is this that can do these things, that can perform these miracles, that can walk on water? And Jesus' demonstration of his own deity continues as soon as he speaks. Notice the words he uses in verse 50. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And what's incredible about that phrase is two particular things. When he says, do not be afraid, he's giving, uh, he's giving an action that occurs in one moment but has long-lasting ramifications. In other words, what he's saying is, stop fearing. Allow your fear to stop in this moment right now and do not fear going forward. Why? Because it is I. And if you look at the words that are translated in your Bible as it is I, it is the same words that would have been used in the Old Testament when God declared, I am. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, in verse 13, Moses is speaking to God and he says, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? In other words, if the people of Israel want to know why they should follow me, what answer am I going to give them? Who am I going to tell them is ultimately in charge? What God am I declaring to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am the pre-existent, pre-eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. I am the creator that spoke the world into motion. I am the creator that spoke into existence things that did not exist out of nothing, ex nihilo, that he spoke the world into being that did not exist. If you want to know by whose power Moses is sent, I am who I am. God is self-defining. He does not identify himself by anything outside of himself because nothing outside of himself even compares there is nothing big enough, nothing grand enough, nothing strong enough, nothing capable enough by which God could compare himself and his authority. And so ultimately God says, if you want to know who I am, I am who I am. And Jesus in this passage says the very same thing. Stop fearing I am. Jesus is saying, if me walking on the water wasn't a clear enough indication of my identity, I am who I am. I am the God who led the Israelites into freedom. I am the God who led the children of Israel with a cloud and a pillar of fire. I am the God who stood the water up like a wall so that the children of Israel could pass through on dry land. And this windstorm is nothing to me. Stop fearing, I am. And the wind ceased. And in this moment, we see that it's only when Jesus joins the disciples in the boat that the storm ceases. 
For several weeks, we've talked about this idea that there is a difference between knowing about God or being in close proximity to God and actually knowing who he is, actually knowing him personally, actually having a relationship with him, that there's a difference between being close to God and knowing him. And here we see the very practical and real application of that difference, that being with Jesus in a very real sense is not a theoretical truth. It has real-world practical consequences. And in this case, they played themselves out in the peace that was given to the disciples. Because Jesus is, I am. We are able to stop fearing. When we hear the words from the mouths of Jesus, that we are not to be afraid because he goes with us even into the end of the world. Do you understand that our hope in this world, our confidence in chaos, is in the fact that Jesus is with us? That Jesus sent one who is like him, that he gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell us to know us intimately, both individually and as a body in this place, in this time. That there is something unique that happens when the people of God gather together that cannot be replicated or duplicated in any other way. And as the wind ceased, they were utterly astonished. For they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. Now think about this. They had just seen Jesus feed the 5,000 men, the 15 to 20,000 people that had gathered together. They had now seen him walk on water. They had previously seen him calm a storm with just the words spoken from his mouth. They had seen him exercise demons from a man who had been oppressed for years. They had seen him do miraculous, amazing, incredible things but they did not see what is obvious to us as readers, that this is God incarnate. Do you understand that faith in God is not an inevitable result of knowing about Jesus? In the words of one author, faith in God is not something that happens automatically just by virtue of exposure. It is a response. It's a response to the moving of the Holy Spirit, to the giving life that only the Holy Spirit can give, to the work that he does in us. And for that reason, even these foolish men who could not see that the man standing in front of them as Jesus Christ was in fact God, as their hearts in fact grew hard towards him because of their own lack of understanding, Jesus is incredibly patient with them. And we thank God that he is because his patience with them is an indicator of his patience toward us. 
That's what was given to us in the New Testament when the author said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And ultimately, we'll see that play out in the disciples' lives. Verse 53, we'll finish quickly. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized Jesus, and they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and they implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. The people come to see Jesus as they always had. And in this case, we're, we're told something explicitly that we've only seen once before. You remember the woman with the issue of blood? She reached out through the crowd. She touched Jesus' garment. And in touching his garment, she is made well. She is healed by virtue of her faith in Jesus Christ. And now, now crowds of people are just trying to touch his garment. And seemingly, as quickly as they can touch his garment, they are made well. They're healed. And to understand what's happening here, I mean, when it says that they reached out and touched the fringe of his garment, some of your Bibles may translate it this way. Observant Jewish men at this time wore tassels around their clothing. They wore four different tassels at the corner of their garments. And those tassels were to be a reminder to the man as he was going about his daily life and going to work and interacting with his family and doing all of the things that Jewish men were expected to do. It was a reminder to that man of the goodness of the law of God. It was to remind him to whom he had covenanted himself, where his heart and his obligations and his hope lied. It was to remind himself of the law that he was commanded to obey. And as people reached out to touch those tassels, they were made well. And that phrase, made well, can also be rightly translated, saved. In other words, there is a work of restoration both physical and potentially spiritual that is happening in these interactions. And all of this, get this, all of this is a picture of Jesus' righteousness. Now, how do we get that? Here's how we get it. The disciples knew the teaching of the law. They knew its commandments. They knew its expectations. They knew the the power of God. They knew the stories of his deliverance in the wilderness and at the Red Sea. And yet in their moment of trial, they doubted and they failed. And the people in this region, region who were largely observant Jews had grown up in synagogue. They had heard the priests and the Levites teach and talk about the importance of the law of God. And yet, consistently, they failed to obey despite even their best attempt. But when Jesus came on the scene, everything changes. When Jesus steps into the boat, the power of God is made evident. When people touch the tassels, symbolizing the perfect commands of God, they are made well, despite their own lack of obedience to that law. Why? Is there something magical about those tassels? No, of course not. 
They were made well because Jesus had perfectly accomplished for them what they were incapable of doing themselves. So J. Gresham Machen said it this way. He said, a low view of the law always produces legalism. A high view of law makes a person a seeker after grace. Now, I'm going to repeat that because that sounds counterintuitive and backward, but I want you to hear it. A low view of law always produces legalism. A low view of the law that always produces legalism because a low view of the law inherent into what it is causes us to conclude that we can do it on our own. If I have a low view of the law of God, what it means is I think I am able to accomplish every commandment and every obligation and every expectation of the Scripture, and I expect that I can do it perfectly. It is a remarkably arrogant attitude that is born of the fact that we have too low of a view of the law. So let me illustrate it this way. Do you remember when Jesus is having the interaction with the Pharisees and he says to them, you know that it's not right to murder somebody. And yet if you hate someone in your heart, you have murdered them in your heart already. You know that it's wrong to have a physical relationship with someone that is not your wife. And yet if you look after a woman to lust after her in your heart, you have already committed adultery with her. In other words, To presume that the law of God is able to be accomplished on your own, by your own strength, is to presume that God's law is so low that even you can step over it. A high view of the law, however, makes a person a seeker after grace. When you understand the magnitude of the law of God, all of the expectations, all of the commands, all of the things that that God says are required of someone in order to be righteous, what you very quickly realize is you have no ability to accomplish it at all. You realize your own desperation. A high view of the law demolishes the presumption that we can do it. And by its very nature, it gets rid of that legalistic attitude that presumes that our own moral endeavors can accomplish it. See, God's good law, in the words of one writer, reveals our desperation. And God's good gospel reveals our deliverer. And it was the gospel that Jesus came to provide and declare It was the realization that he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That Jesus was the only perfect person who has ever walked this earth. So when those people were reaching out to touch the corners of his garment, when they were experiencing the healing that came from them, it was an indication, a declaration, a shouting from the mountaintops to anyone who had ears to hear that here stood a perfect and righteous person. And on the cross... Jesus Christ bore the burden for those people's failure. And he bore the burden for my failure and for yours. Every violation of the law that you've ever committed or that you ever will commit, if you are in Christ, if you know Jesus as your Savior, it was put onto Jesus at the cross. And in this moment, as these people received healing, restoration, salvation, 
they received the benefit of Jesus Christ's obedience. Obedience in his life and obedience unto death. Do you understand, if you're in the sound of my voice, do you understand that he offers the same hope of salvation to you? Not based on anything you've done, not based on anything you could ever do, based solely on his own generosity, on his own power, on his own compassion, on his own grace. He offers salvation to us. My hope is that for those who don't know him, that you would respond to that invitation in this evening. And for those that do know him, that you would walk away not just seeing the Jesus who walked on water, but realizing everything that his walking on water declared about his character and his nature. Be reminded, brothers and sisters, of the Jesus Christ who left heaven's glories to come to this earth, to live a perfect life, to die the death that we deserved, and to raise once more, to give life free and abundant to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for stories that defy explanation, for stories that according to any kind of physical or scientific explanation that we could offer, do not make sense. That the only way this story could be true and the only way that it could make sense is if Jesus Christ was in fact God. Realizing that you didn't, you didn't record in this story a record of, of Jesus Christ giving into temptation or sinning. But that by virtue of the healing that was doled out by him, it was evidence of his perfect righteousness. God, we thank you that we have nothing but your grace to rest in and rely on. We thank you that you are a powerful and compassionate Savior. And we thank you for the truth that a passage like this declares to our hearts today, 2,000 years later. Help us to be cognizant and aware, to have ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty and the wonder of what you record for us in this text. And we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory for it. And it's in your beautiful name we pray, amen.